Would you all um, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13? Unfortunately, the TV is not working, so we can't project anything. So if you have your Bibles at home, please um, open them up to 1 Corinthians 13. And as you guys are seated, please open them up to 1 Corinthians 13 as well. This Sunday, we're returning to our devoted series, Before I Left for the Beach. That's where we were before Brad preached through Philippians looking at how God calls us to express the new life we have together in Christ Jesus. And can you guys hear me okay right now? Okay. Our, our last few messages in this series before Jen and I went away focused on the issue of the reality of and the use of spiritual gifts as we gather together. And we've been drawing from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 because it's probably the most concentrated, like all in one place and expansive, so much of it treatment of the spiritual gifts in any one place in the New Testament. And, and it's so, it is so essentially intertwined with the idea of being devoted to one another um, that it, it really begs careful consideration and study for us. As I said last week, the, the major idea that connects these three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, is this. The Lord wants to care for his people through his people because he loves his people. The Lord wants to care for his people through his people because he loves his people. The Lord wants to care for you through you, one another, because he loves you. And God has ordained that in that purpose, he has ordained that his body will need one another. And that his body will need him through the ministry of one another. It's always God whom we need, but God has essentially distributed himself out to the members of his body so that we receive him through one another. And we're caught up into this self-giving God as we become givers to one another. When God saved us, he gave each of us a ministry, a service, or a gift, or possibly continues to do so. We see that in Timothy's life, he received a gift apparently after he was saved, through the laying on of hands, Paul says. But the Bible in, in 1 Corinthians 12 talks about when the Lord placed us in his body. He gave each of us a gift, a service, a ministry, abilities. And these gifts, they may look more or less supernatural than others. Prophetic gifts, like we've seen some, from some people in our, in our congregation. Some of you have experienced those things. I have beheld prophetic gifts that have amazed me before I came to this church, since I've come to this church, where people just have a burden to say something. They have no idea what's going on in my life, but it's so apt for where I am. And I've seen God do that from one of you to others in ways that make my jaw drop. Prophetic gifts are miraculous gifts to us. They're astounding to us immediately. But there are other gifts like leadership gifts or teaching gifts, administration gifts, gifts of hospitality. And these are no less supernatural miraculous because they don't like immediately wow us. They are, in a sense, all spiritual and supernatural because they're given from the Lord in his power to express him one to another. And, and so what, what unites all these gifts and all their purposes is the sense of serving one another, whether it's through what we would call more supernatural-looking gifts or what we would call more ordinary gifts like teaching or, or, or helps or mercy, someone who just has a heart that God gave them when he saved them, to just have extended extreme, long-suffering patience with someone. And they, they discover, wow, I have a power I didn't have before to just bear with people through things. 
that really knock other people off. Some people have the gift to give easily and quickly of, of their treasures because God's given them that power. So those don't look as supernatural, but they are just as supernatural from the Lord. What ties them all together is this God of giving who gives power to us to give. And, and last time that we, let, we read Paul here, he was dealing with this issue that was being lost as some gifts were being used not to, to reflect on the giver, the giving nature of God, but on the, the greatness of the gift bearer. Some gifts were being used to exalt people over others. They were missing the whole point of the gifts, that whether your gift was considered great or small, it, it, didn't, it was about the giver and the giving, not the one who holds the gift. And so he stops in this, in this whole treat teaching on, on gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. He stops right in the middle of his argument to talk about love and where he brings us the greatest love chapter that everyone, you know, in, in the Western world who's ever been to a wedding, as I've joked before, has heard. You might recall, I tried to point out that if you trace the flow of Paul's thought, starting in 1 Corinthians 12 through 1 Corinthians 14, we see something profound. That in chapter 12, he introduces gifts. He's explaining their purpose of mutual edification. In chapter 14, we skip over 13, he, he explains practically what bearing the purpose of gifts needs to have on the church when it's actually gathered together. He gets very practical, and we'll see that in the next coming weeks, on how to use these gifts in the gathered church together on a Sunday like this. But right there in the middle of 12 and 13, and he didn't invent these, these chapter numbers, by the way. They were put in later. But right in the middle of his argument on the spiritual gifts, he breaks and he stops and he goes into this glorious excursion on the supremacy of love over the gifts. And he says these words, starting in 13.1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And then he goes on. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I'm convicted this morning as I read this afresh. In the last few days, Jen and I have had some hard conversations, two of them, uh, a couple of days ago and one last night. And by God's grace, we're, you know, they, they rounded out in a sense. But I had some points to make. I had some important issues I wanted to bring up. And as I look at this afresh, I'm just reminded so much of it was noisy gong and clanging cymbals. And I'm sorry, sweetie, and I'm sorry to the Lord. Because I'm seeing as I go over these words how my heart falls so short of these things. 
This is what Paul is trying to get them to see. This is the whole point of being right or having some good information to give or the best idea or, or supernatural gift. It's about love. The, the whole point of the gift, the whole point of your salvation, of my salvation, is to create a people who are so full of Jesus and his holy self-giving nature of love. A people who are so full of the God who is love, as the Apostle John puts it, that they exude the character of love in all things, and especially in the spiritual gifts that they receive from God. Dia Carson does a beautiful job exalting the, the beauty of this love, at least he did for me, and I, I hope this blesses you. In his commentary on this chapter, he stops and he says, if I must say a few words, in a few words, what is distinctive about God's love for us, it is that it is, this is so beautiful, it is that it is self-originating. When a young man reveals his heart with a passionate declaration to his, to his girlfriend or to his engaged person, that's who he's thinking of, and he says, I love you, at least in part, he means that he finds the woman he loves lovely. At least some of his love is elicited by the object of that love. Some of the love, at least, if not all of it, is elicited from her loveliness, from the object of his love. But God loves what is unlovely. If, as John 3.16 tells us, God loves the world, it is not because the world is so lovely that God cannot help himself. Judging by John's use of the term world, God loves the world only because of what he is. And derivatively, meaning from God, that is how Christians learn to love. They learn to love with love that is like God's, self-originating. Of course, unlike God's love, ours is not absolutely self-originating. But it is self-originating in the sense that God's grace so transforms the believer and we all want to say, over decades. <laughs> that God's grace so transforms the believer that his or her responses of love emerge out of the matrix of Christian character. That is, out of God's own heart. That is, they are less dependent on the loveliness of the object. And they draw their source from God, who loves because he is love not because the object is so lovely. Think about what this can mean for our marriages, for our parentings, for our broken marriages, for our broken places, for, for our church. When you come to a prayer meeting, or you decide not to, or you come to a Sunday morning, or you decide not to, or you come to a care group, or you decide not to, what's going on in your heart? For, for us, so often, it's first and foremost, how do I feel about this? What am I going to get out of this? God says, 
in your relationships, in your church, in the world. This is what I've called you to. This blindingly glorious light. Self-giving love originating, not in the lovability of the person or the people gathered, but in God's desire to give to them through you. This is the foundation for all things and no less for spiritual gifts. This is what gifts are for. And this is what Paul is trying to get them to see and what God would have us see. So let's continue to meditate on his argument through the rest of 13 about the supremacy of love. And and as we do, I think we'll see something along the way that will bring great clarity to us concerning our expectation of spiritual gifts. Starting in verse 8, we'll pick up where we left off last week. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. We'll take this piece by piece here, starting in verse 8 again. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Can you imagine a day when you will no longer need to hear a sermon? I mean, a really good one, full of wisdom and knowledge that that God has used to build you up for years. You will get to a place where you're just like, I don't need to hear that anymore. I don't need to hear that sermon. Can you imagine a day when you'll no longer need to have the knowledge, counsel of a friend? And I want to be careful. I want to be really careful here. But a day when you, you may no longer need to have a Bible study. Don't disqualify me in fire yet. That, that, that sounds at least sad, if not blasphemous, right? Like, won't we be singing and praising God before throne with the throne of God and heaven eternally on earth, heaven and earth, you know, wherever we are located at that time, won't we be doing that eternally with the words we see now in Scripture? Won't that require knowledge and wisdom and prophetic insight? Yes, yes. I do believe we will spend eternity in praise and in the enjoyment and the glory of God 
And I can't imagine how we won't be honoring all the words of Scripture he's given us. The Bible teaches that the knowledge of God, knowing the heart of God at its very core, is the essence of eternal life. Being intimate with who God is and knowing him is the essence of eternal life. The Bible tells us that the word of God endures forever. But, but try to follow me here. In our current age, sermons, prophetic words, the nourishment of our souls in Bible study, the singing of praises to God, the receiving of a miracle of healing that, that encourages our faith where it was weak, a, a moment in prayer that gives us a profound sense of God's power or nearness. These means of grace, they are right now in our age more a function of our need for them than they are usually ever an expression of our fullness. What I mean is that now we eat to be full, but a day is coming where we will eat not out of emptiness, but out of complete, never-ending sufficiency and fullness, which is hard for us to comprehend. In our life now, what we take in of God in prayer, in the word, in fellowship, in the sharing of spiritual gifts when we do. We do it mostly because we must. Because right now we are quickly blind without continual nourishment from the word to renew our sight. Because now we are easily hopeless without a return of encouragement from a friend. We move to heartlessness very easily without the exhortation of a godly brother or sister in Christ. Because now we are so often powerless without prayer that lifts us up from the depths of lethargy or despair. What we get from God, we so often get because we sense such a need for God. A present emptiness, a present lack but when Christ appears in glory, when he finishes what he began in you, when he placed his spirit in you, when he returns to this earth to renew it completely and bring heaven down so that earth and heaven are married, when we are raised from the dead, these bodies that your bones sit in right now are transformed completely, that have been corrupted by the fall. When they fall into their perfect glorification. Even the possibility of heartlessness, the possibility of hopelessness, the possibility of powerlessness or laziness or despair, the possibility of selfishness will be removed. There will be no possibility of emptiness. Paul is not saying that knowledge will pass away. He is saying the need for the gift that fills our lack of knowledge will be gone. He's not saying the word of God will cease to exist. He's saying the need for the gift that gives us the ability to see when we can't, to know God in a way we don't right now, will be gone. Listen, when someone is placed from head to toe, I mean, not, not above their head, but when they're placed up to their chest in the freshest, in a lake of the freshest clean water imaginable, 
then the idea of, of needing to depend on someone for a cup of fresh water from the shore becomes nonsensical, right? Here, here's your water. What are you talking about? Aren't you thirsty? How could I possibly be thirsty? Look where I am. It's not that there's no knowledge of the Lord. It's that that's all, it's everywhere. In Jeremiah 31, some five centuries before Paul wrote this letter, God spoke these words to the prophet. He said, Jeremiah 31, 34, listen to these words. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jeremiah says there's a day when there won't even be a need for someone to teach you about God because you're so full of him. And I think there's a way in which, this is New Covenant language, so we're in the New Covenant. And I think there's a way in which this has been partially fulfilled in our age. Those who have come to Christ have the very Spirit of Christ in them, teaching them. But there is, I believe, a fuller fulfillment of the new covenant to come, right? I mean, the new covenant includes, that. the new covenant is the covenant. It includes Jesus' return. That's not happened yet. And so this picture of being full to the fullest in the new covenant, where you don't even need someone to teach you about God anymore, it is coming. And I believe Paul sees this day coming in his words to us today. And he points to that day when it will finally be true that no one will need to hear a sermon from me because you will know him more deeply than any person could ever teach you. This is what he's telling us when he says in verse 12 here, I know in part, this is Paul the apostle, right? He says, I know in part. I look in a mirror dimly, but then I shall know fully even as I've been fully known now. God knows everything about me, Paul says, but then I will know him like that, he says. And this is what these words are intimating. They're really shocking words. There is going to come a day when you will know God so deeply and so perfectly and so intimately and so will I that the greatest sermon you hear now, the deepest theological insight you get that thrills you, it will be like, it will be like a three-year-old, a three-year-old boy trying to tell a fish what it's like to breathe underwater. <laughs> hey, fish. I mean, if a fish could understand and process this little boy, you know, my son John, you know, my son William coming over to the lake and telling a fish, let me, let me tell you what I think. I got this textbook here. Let me tell you what I think it's like to breathe underwater. And the fish is like, thanks. I think that's how Jonathan Edwards is going to sound to us. I, I do. Jonathan Edwards, you, you, you barely knew the tip of it. There's going to come a day when you will enjoy God's fellowship. This isn't just head knowledge. It's heart knowledge. It's intimacy. You will enjoy him so deeply, fully, that the most intimate moments now you have of spiritual joy and intimacy that you've feasted on in moments with the Lord in this life will be more like first dates compared to the most rapturous, in love, 
soul-uniting honeymoon bliss that we could ever hope to have or any movie could ever be about. And this kind of filling, this kind of transformation will transform the universe. All things, the Lord says, will be made new. We know in part, we prophesy in part, now. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. This also tells us the perfect has not come. The perfect has not come. I know some people who will tell me, the fullness of all of the kingdom is here now and available to us. It isn't. We are at the beginning of the invasion. The host of the Lord have landed on the beachhead. The war will be won. But we have not yet seen the world conquered by her rightful king fully yet, right? Hebrews tells us, but we do not yet see all things under his feet. All things have been given to him, but that is in process of being realized. All authority does belong to him, but he is patient in his takeover, not wanting anyone to perish. God is redeeming a people in the midst of a fallen world, but it is still in a state of fallenness outside of his people. The devil still roams around seeking someone to devour, Peter tells us. John tells us we live in a world that is ruled, he says. The whole world is under the power of the evil one. Hebrews tells us it is still appointed to every man and woman and child to die and to face judgment. Apart from Christ, that judgment is a horrible judgment. This is a world in which we are promised trouble and tribulation. Paul expands in Romans 8. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together up until now in the pains of childbirth. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, not the full harvest, the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's talking about the day when we see face to face. And he says, Now, for in this hope we were saved. We were saved to see him face to face. But now, the hope that is seen is not hope. We don't see it yet. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So a great implication of what Paul is saying in Romans 8 is that we need right now. We don't have everything that we will have. We don't get everything that we will get. We are in a constant, in a sense, state of needing and filling. While we wait, we need spiritual fuel again and again for the journey because we have not reached the end of our destination. And listen, this has huge implications for spiritual gifts. I know of no greater or more irrefutable argument for the continuation of spiritual gifts than the fact that the perfect has not yet come. 
if the perfect had come, the gifts would cease because the fullness that the gifts make up for in part would be here. Do you see what I'm saying? I went to a cessationist seminary where they taught me that, the, that these miraculous gifts of prophecy and tongues and word of knowledge and healing and miracles, they, they were done. I mean, God could do anything he wanted. Let's not be careful to put God in a box. Yes, they, they were good. To, but they said, no, no, in terms of people being agents of these gifts, they're, they're done. That is impossible. Paul says, when the perfect comes, then the partial will pass away. This is what he makes clear the next two verses, verses 11 and 12. Listen to what he says. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. That might be translated childlike ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Do you see what he's doing? He's comparing child to now, dimly seeing. And he's comparing adulthood to seeing face to face. Paul is not saying, give up childish ways, you immature people. I mean, he'll, he'll, he'll use child in that way, you're, you know, immaturity. He'll talk about that in other places. But that's not what he's saying here. That argument makes no sense. Paul is saying childlike ways are what children naturally exhibit. A child reasons like a child, not because he's naughty, but because he's not reached the fullness of his brain's abilities. The fullness of his body's destination is adulthood. He's not reached it, so he reasons like a child. There is a time for diapers. There is a time for training wheels. It's not a sin to wear diapers at two years old. It's wisdom. It's not a sin to use training wheels at six years old. It's safety. You need them. You have to have them. Without them, you are inadequately and insufficiently equipped. But diapers and training wheels at 25 years old, those are signs that something has gone wrong in the development of your physiology. Paul's talking about gifts, brothers and sisters. We need them. And, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a humbling about gifts here. He's saying needing gifts and having gifts is not where we're going. We're going to a place of such fullness that I don't, I won't need your prophetic gift. I won't need your teaching gift. I, I will be full as you are full. But now we're not there, he's saying. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. Paul is saying as a metaphor through all this, relative to where we will be when Christ transforms us at his coming, that we are in the age of childhood. Paul is saying that where we will be when Christ fully transforms us at his coming, that we are now, we are now in the age of childhood. That's what he's saying here. An age where we need the training wheels of spiritual gifts, where we need prophecy and wisdom and knowledge from one to another. An age where we need pastors and teachers and quiet times and prayer meetings and communion to keep us growing. But a day is, is coming where we will not need anything anymore to keep us growing because we will be fully grown. 
we will be home. We will have completed our journey. Spiritual gifts are like postcards from the ocean you're driving to. Spiritual gifts are like postcards from the ocean you're driving to. Spiritual gifts are like the car that you're driving to the ocean in. When we arrive to the ocean, we don't sit in the car and look at the postcards. We get out and go swimming. But we're not at the ocean yet. So we need the car. We need the hope the postcards give us. Verse 12, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Compared to how we see our Lord now, it is going to be as if we'd moved from photograph to face to face meeting. Compared to how we will love him and trust him and hope in him on that day, our present experience, it'll feel like a beautiful starlit night. When suddenly the sunrise comes and you can't see the stars anymore because the fullness of the light is so great that all the lesser lights are unnecessary and extinguished. That is a famous quote from, I think, Karl Barth. He said, speaking of the day when the Lord comes, because the sun rises, all other lights are extinguished. The lights are good now. They're needed now. These spiritual gifts are good. They're needed our means of grace, all of them are good. Can you imagine a day coming where you can't help but be ecstatic and filled with love because of Jesus? Not because you had your quiet time, because you're just done. You're just full of him completely. And you go have your quiet time, maybe. I don't know what we'll be doing, but we'll do it because we're so full of him. And we'll be no less fuller having had it because we can't get any more full. We're just full of God all the time. This is the day when our faith is replaced by sight. The, verse 11, Now faith, hope, and love abide. These three remain, but the greatest of these is love. People talk about what exactly this means. The, the way that I think this, this is communicating to, in my present understanding is that there's a day coming where faith will be replaced by sight, but love will never go away. There's a day where hope will be realized, and we have no more need to hope because it will be realized. But there will never be a day where we stop loving. We, we will go on loving, we'll be called to love, and we'll love perfectly, just as we're called to love more imperfectly now. It, it, love is the substance of God's nature. How, how, how could it ever end? It's the, it's the core of his relationship within himself. Father loving the Son, Son loving the Father, Spirit loving both. It, it never ends. To live in this, what D.A. Carson told us, this, this self-originating, perfect love is what we were created for. It is what we were growing towards now. It, it is what we're being called to now. You know this in your heart, that this is what you thirst for. This is what you were made for. And it's so brilliant and beautiful that it bursts through even into the unbeliever's world, and, and they say, that is beautiful. You know, when, when they see a movie... Like the movie about that, it's, it's a movie about a, a medic who refused to fight, but he, he went and he, he lived with the soldiers to risk his life to care for them. 
It was a recent movie uh, with Andrew Garfield done by Mel Gibson. It was a true story about a Christian man who didn't feel in his conscience that he could kill other people, but he felt in his conscience that he had to go and help those who were in danger of being killed. Jockey's Ridge, maybe. I, I can't remember the exact name of it. But, but the world saw that. And it was a, critics saw it and they said, that is so compelling. They were seeing the image of God in a man and beholding that glory. That's what God wants to do through us. And that's what spiritual gifts are for. So a couple of final applications. Spiritual gifts exist because we need them. They're here to carry us on our journey toward knowing and loving God perfectly. Secondarily, knowing and loving each other until the perfect comes. And if the perfect has not yet come, then there is absolutely no basis for saying they have stopped or that we don't need them. I belabor this point because I believe that it is, in our present context, it is still difficult for us to be comfortable with spiritual gifts for many of us. It just is. Even if we've been practicing them, they're difficult to practice. Because you, especially in gifts like prophetic words or a word of knowledge, these kinds of gifts that, that, are, that feel more supernatural. You know, Kim sent me something a few days ago. And she said, I, I just I don't know if I should share this or not. I don't know. I, I struggle to know if this is from the Lord or not. I don't know if this is completely right or not. I mean, she might as well just said, I see in part. I see in part. I don't know exactly. I see dimly as in a mirror. And she sent it to me. And, and I just thought, wow. Like, she didn't know. How could she have known? But this couldn't have come at a better time. I remember... In the year 20, 2009, being at a care group at Pastors College down in Gaithersburg, we all sat around our little care group talking about how excited we were to go back to our sending churches. I was going back to Chesapeake. Other guys were going back to Pennsylvania and California, and we missed our churches. We'd been studying all year long to serve them and been in touch with them. And so I was talking about, and me and Jen were talking about going back to Chesapeake to her little town condo. We had Marie, her little baby girl. She was like one, this, like this. I was excited. One of the guys was just writing. His name was Eric Holder while I was talking. Eric eventually won the academic prize in the class. He was a brilliant guy. He ran companies. He, he, you know, his wife went to Brown University. There was all kinds of cultural accomplishment in Eric. He, he wasn't given to flighty, nonsensical ways. Brilliant guy, godly guy, got six kids, super grounded, mature guy. I always felt like I was embarrassed to be around him because just one of those impressive, quiet, strong guys. I go home. And I get a call from my sending pastor, Eric Hughes, who I love. He's come to preach with us. And he says, Albert, we can't bring you here anymore. We're having a big church problem. We had to fire a pastor. We said it was because of money. And now we want to bring you back. And the people who love that pastor are saying, why is it just because of money? If you can bring Albert back. And he said, well, it is because of money. We're not going to bring Albert back at that salary. But we also feel like we need Albert because his gifts are, you know, you know he was being gracious about me. 
line was he couldn't bring me back without he felt really tearing up the church, and they had to talk about it as a team and figure this out. I was devastated. Like, what? I got a little baby. I've only been married a couple years. I think at that time we were, Jen was pregnant, but we weren't going to carry that. It was just a few weeks, a pregnancy that only lasted a few weeks. And, and it was just like, everything just felt like it collapsed, you know? And I wrote the guys in the PC class, and I said, guys, this is what's happening. Please pray for us. We don't know where we're going anymore. We don't, I don't have a salary <laughs> in two months. I don't have any money. And Eric wrote me, and he said, I, I didn't want to say this to you while we were in our care group because I didn't want to be a downer while everybody was excited about where they were going and what they were going to be doing. But I, I wrote this. And I had no idea what was going to happen to you. So I'll just send it to you. And he sent me the email. And here's what it said. While we're all talking about going back to our churches, how excited it was, Eric writes me this email. It says, Albert, the Lord, I believe the Lord is saying to you, I am not sending you back where you came from. I brought you here for another purpose, another people, another church. You have a work to do that's not what you were doing. You're going somewhere else. You're not going back to Chesapeake. I mean, I've had a lot of problems and trials where I haven't had that kind of immediate comfort. But but I needed that. That kept me going. That kept me not giving up. And God knew I needed that. And he's met me in other ways that, that would strike you as less profound but would be just as important and powerful. But I just share that to say that it can be very hard to bring these ideas and words, but they can be very important for us. And this is just one example. Your gift might be serving and setting up, and it might be Josh's only gift. But Josh, this is how we're having church for like, two months now or something. Like this is how we're able to stay connected to each other as a community in large part because of God working through your gift. We need what God has for us and we shouldn't be ashamed whether it's spectacular and strange. If God says we need it and he has it for us, we should want to know and understand and pursue it. And if it looks normal and it looks more mundane or more usual and less spectacular, we shouldn't be ashamed because God says we need it and we should pursue it. So we should know more and more about what the gifts are, what they have for us, what they may be in terms of what they have in store for us as a community. That's the first point is spiritual gifts exist because we need them and so we need to pursue them. So I want to encourage you, let this be a season of investigation and prayer about these things. Please be asking God for the gifts he wants to bring to our church. Stir up in you. Stir up in others. Ask him to give the gifts across the church that he wants to build our church, to help our church be renewed and strengthened. Please pray for that. Please seek it. This week I will send you a paper on gifts that goes into detail, and I'll reference that in later sermons. Um, and I'm also working on a a gifts test. I've, I've taken many of these. I'm not through this one. I want to make sure that I 
think it's edifying for you before I give it to you, but I'm hoping to send that to you, but at least I will send the paper on gifts this week so you can think about these and pray about these. Number two, this is connected to everything we said. Please be encouraged and reminded that as Paul's trying to do through this word here, that the motive and the purpose of the gifts is to love one another for God's glory, that he might be seen and rejoiced and hoped in and rested in through our use of gifts. I saw some film on YouTube this week. I've seen a couple of things where these supposedly charismatic churches are operating, and all I can tell you is it was frightening to see. I, I, I could either laugh or I could just be sad because of what I was seeing happening among the people. I, I won't go too much into detail, but you really couldn't tell the difference between I mean, it, it looked like what I would have thought would have been an exorcism going on for e- almost everyone in the conversation, in the congregation. The shaking and the contortions, and the, it was super bizarre. And, 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 and anyone, and, and the, the person who was preaching was literally screaming at the people. And this was supposed to be a Holy Spirit revival. And I just thought, you know, as Paul says in this letter, we'll read in, in the next chapter, if an unbeliever walked into this room, how would they think about God from this situation? They would be frightened and scared, and they would run. And I'm not God, and I know he's done crazy things. But I know that anyone I know who doesn't know Jesus and walks into a church where everyone is screaming and convulsing on the floor is going to run. And you're going to not give them grief about that. You're going to be like, yeah, they should run. And so that can scare us away from pursuing these things. But what it can do is make us throw the baby off with, out with the bathwater. We're not looking for convulsions and screamings. We're looking for the ability to love each other in every way that God would have for us. And it should be the most freeing and powerful endorsement for us to seek spiritual gifts that God says we need and that, that, it, that, that it is his desire to, to use them so that we can do one main thing to be self-giving, to love one another, the gift of helps, the gift of giving, the gift of mercy, the gift of tongues, the gift of teaching. Well, the gift of tongues with interpretation. He's careful to qualify it for that very reason. What can a tongue do if no one can understand it? It can't build up anybody. Just make the person look great. That's not what we're after. We're not after creating a show or being wild. We're after building each other up as Nathan did today, as Rob did. This picture that Rob shared in Ephesians 3 of love never ending, of filling us up to the full. I'm more and more convinced that prayer is a prayer that God wants us praying from beginning to end because its final realization is in his return. That's when we will know fully how high and wide and long and deep is the love of Christ. So, These spiritual gifts are tools to do the powerful work of love. And we should be encouraged that he wants to equip us well with what we need to do, the most beautiful, worthwhile work we can do, which is to love one another.